Mark chapter 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the rooftop go down to his house, of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, he is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Margaret, and do please keep that passage of the Bible open, and uh, you'll see on the screen, as it appears, uh, the title for this passage, Mark 13, Living with the End in View. Uh, There is an old Chinese proverb which says, to prophesy is extremely difficult, especially with regard to the future. In fact, um, quite a lot of people try to do so. And if you go into Blackwell's, there's a whole section of books on futures. Some of them are surprisingly optimistic. They talk about a great period of technological achievement and a cultural rebirth which we are heading towards. But the vast majority of books uh, tend to adopt the position which was written by Arthur Miller when he said, no age has shown more interest in the future than ours which is ironic, since it may not have one. In fact, predictions about the end of the world are now surprisingly common. You may know that the Mayan calendar comes to a close on December the 21st, 2012, which by a happy coincidence is my birthday. And uh, this is used many times over, and it has provoked lots of publications. It inspired the film 2012, which some of you might have seen, with all of the end times and uh, end of the world features there. In fact, some critics of that film said at several points through the film, they thought, unlike the world, this film is never going to end. Anyway, you can now buy uh, WWUB t-shirts, Where Will You Be, on December the 21st, 2012. You can buy books by Ronald Vineland, who's the pastor of God's church on earth, allegedly appointed by the God of Abraham to be his end-time prophet preceding the return of Jesus Christ on May the 27th, 2012, a little earlier. Or slightly more urgently, Harold Camping, the head of Family Radio in the United States, announces Judgment Day on his homepage, and it is May the 21st, 2011. That's 41 days' time. The website even has the nerve to state the Bible guarantees it. The problem is, I could go on, the problem is that all of this seems to come from the world of the religious fanatic, the wacky, the weird. You tend to wonder what these guys are smoking. And the danger, therefore, is that we marginalize this whole discussion about the end times, the last things. Mark 13, of course, does introduce some realism about this issue. And although it is a demanding chapter, In essence, Jesus is very clear about the issue of his return. Verse 26, it will happen. At that time, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Verse 32, no one knows when. 
No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Um, In this chapter, you can see that Jesus uses language from what we call Old Testament apocalyptic. And this kind of uh, literature uh, often is rather mysterious. This present world order, Jesus is indicating, will come to an end. And it will not be through environmental catastrophe. It will not be through some nuclear holocaust, although actually those things may well contribute to it. If you look at some of the language here, verses 24 and 25, maybe those things play their part. But this world will come to an end because of God's final intervention in the return of his son, Jesus Christ. And this whole chapter, as you read it, has a very strong sense of purpose. For me, the way to understand this chapter is to notice the repeated refrain which comes through it. Warnings and encouragements. Verse 5, watch out. Verse 7, don't be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, be on your guard. Verse 33, be alert. And the final words, verse 35... Keep watch. So to try and make sense of this demanding chapter, here are just four sections that we're going to look at very briskly. Number one, questions. The chapter begins with Jesus leaving the temple, and it closes the section which began in Mark chapter 11 with Jesus having made his judgment that instead of this temple being a house of prayer, it was little more than a den of robbers. The disciples, though, as you look at verse 1, were really captivated by the religious significance of this temple, by its impressive scale. Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And it was true. Herod's temple of that day was one of the wonders of the ancient world. But Jesus wasn't at all impressed by the building, by the temple. He knew that because of the failure of God's people, And because of their rejection of God's purpose, it was no longer to be seen as the place where God dwelt. And just as the fig tree was fruitless, you remember that little illustration earlier on in Mark, so it was cursed and would die. And the temple was a dead monument to institutional religion, so it too will fade away. Verse 2, do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown away. Well, that leads to the questions of this little section. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? See, they assumed that the destruction of the temple, which Jesus was predicting, would in fact be the end of the world as they knew it. And so they were very keen to discover what sign would allow them to recognize the approach of this event. It's worth remembering, looking at Mark 13, that there are two things which are in view. There is an immediate event which Jesus is talking about, which is the destruction of the temple that occurred about 40 years later in AD 70. And there is an ultimate event to which I've already referred, which is Jesus' return. In fact, it's often said that when you're reading passages like this or you're reading Old Testament prophecies, it's rather like looking out at a range of mountains, if you've ever had that experience, and you can see them going away in the distance, mountain after mountain. You can see the different peaks, but it's very difficult to assess the terrain that lies between them. 
And this is exactly what's happening in Mark 13. Some predictions of this immediate event and some prediction of the ultimate event. Well, now we come to the second section, what I've called warnings. It's verses 5 to 13. You see, Jesus categorically refused to answer those questions, questions in terms of when will this event happen? You'll notice there is no secret knowledge that's spelt out in Mark 13, no careful mathematical calculations, which you can find on all the websites these days, to unlock the future, no chronology to aid prediction. In fact, contrary to how this chapter is sometimes used by Christians, Jesus is not giving us signs that will help us to know when he's coming back. Most of the text argues the opposite. We don't know when Jesus is returning and when the world as we know it will end. Instead, Jesus gives us a series of warnings. He urges us to be watchful, to be on our guard, to be ready, to keep alert. And there are several things which he highlights which characterize the period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And there's a great deal of realism here which should shape our worldview as Christian disciples. Here are some of them. I just put them up as bullet points. First of all, false messiahs. Verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And it's repeated if you go to verses 21 and 23. At that time, if anyone says, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. And this, of course, is characteristic of every culture and every generation from the first century onwards with so many claims to truth, so many false messiahs and charlatans. See, the message to all Christians is don't be gullible. Watch out. You will be deceived unless you listen carefully to Jesus' words. A second characteristic, verses 7 and 8, conflicts and disasters. And we're all too familiar with the litany of suffering which Jesus speaks of in these verses. Wars, international conflict, earthquakes, famine... All of these things are the inevitable results of living in a broken world. There is untold suffering, even now, in Japan, or in Libya, or in Côte d'Ivoire. These are unanswerable questions which are put to us by this suffering world. And it's no surprise when you look at this list that these catastrophic disasters have led many people to think this must be the end of the world. But Jesus says the opposite, verse 7, don't be alarmed, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. They are the beginning of birth pangs, he says in verse 8. In other words, this is the onset of labor, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately. It doesn't mean that uh, we now expect the end of the world or Jesus' return. Instead, it's a signal that we're living in this fractured world, which certainly one day will come to an end. And then thirdly, a third characteristic is persecution. Again, you see, Jesus is very realistic. He's describing what is our normal environment as Christian disciples all around the world. Verse 9, for those early disciples, you will be handed over to the authorities and flogged in the synagogues. 
Verse 11, you'll be arrested and brought to trial. Verse 12, some of you will have family members turn against you. And Jesus says, well, this is going to happen to you, Christians. Don't take it personally. Verse 13, all men will hate you because of me. If you are a Christian and you name the name of Christ, you are going to suffer this kind of thing. So you see, once again, Jesus is teaching us how to view the troubles which we will inevitably face in these last days, this period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we are not going to be protected from hard times. We Christians are not immune from the pains of living in this broken world. We're not going to be immune from the persecution of those who reject Christ. This is what you should expect, Jesus is saying. And of course, it's true. Uh, the figures we have are that for about 200 million evangelicals in about 35 countries around the world, those believers are, are suffering direct and hostile persecution. And it's true for some of us here. Some of us are alienated from our families. We are mocked in our workplace. We're insulted because of our moral stand. Jesus says, this is how it will be if you name the name of Jesus Christ. And that's, that persecution is linked to another characteristic, which is there in verse 10. It's number four, and that is mission. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And you'll see how all of this is thrown together. And actually, that's true in the world in which we live. Paradoxically, the gospel often advances in situations where Christians are under the greatest pressure. Christians are called to defend the faith, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And this has been characteristic of the 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words across nations and languages and people groups and tribes and families. The gospel has been preached to all nations. It's the good news that God has acted in this dying and broken world. He has acted in Jesus Christ to bring salvation and to bring judgment, to deal with the consequences of our rebellion and to call men and women back. In fact, it is his mercy which is holding God back from finally acting in judgment to which this chapter points. It is because God longs that all men and women should repent and believe. The gospel must be preached to all nations well, now we come to the third section, what I've called predictions, verses 14 to 27. And uh, as I hinted, at least one way of understanding this chapter is to realize it has this double perspective, these two crises which are described. One's immediate and one is longer term. So first of all, Jesus is describing the destruction of the temple. And the passage, which Margaret read to us, borrows very heavily from the language of the Old Testament, and particularly from the book of Daniel, where Daniel records the desecration of the temple by a Syrian king who sets up this idolatrous statue in the temple. And this is one of the signs, this is probably the sign, that Jesus will return. It is the destruction of the temple, the particular event which Jesus said in verse 2 would happen. The temple would be destroyed. And it would be a terrible day of suffering. As you read those verses, they actually came true when the Roman Empire descended upon Jerusalem in August AD 70. They were terrible days of suffering 
People flew to the mountains. The days of distress were unequaled. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed much of the city. The thing about it, you see, is the temple looked so impressive. It looked so permanent. That's what the disciples said at the beginning of the chapter. And so when you see that temple destroyed, it is a foretaste of a judgment which is to come. Our present world may look very stable. It may look permanent. Our life might seem very predictable. But Jesus says at the end of this little section, verse 23, be on your guard. Because there is another prediction. Secondly, the coming of the Son of Man. And perhaps in some of his most well-known words, Jesus describes that coming of the Son of Man. And several things stand out. First of all, it will be obvious Everyone will see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory, verse 26. And the New Testament writers elsewhere underline this dramatic, this inescapable nature of the return of Jesus Christ. The other thing that stands out, verse 27, is that it signals the return of God's people, the gathering of God's people from every corner of the globe. See, if verse 10 suggests that the gospel is going to be preached to all nations, well, now when Jesus returns, the harvest will finally be gathered in and God's family, redeemed by God's Son, Jesus Christ, will be gathered together as one, God's chosen people. It is, in fact, I think, a great word of assurance to all Christians that however mysterious this chapter might be, This is a strong word of encouragement. Perhaps when you think of Christians whose lives have been lost, taken through war, or taken through earthquake, or through persecution, their future is absolutely secure and safe, as Jesus describes it here. The lesson of the fig tree, now in verse 28, is that it's used as a symbol of hope, The twigs become tender, the leaves appear. So the summer is almost upon us. Jesus is coming back. That's the perspective. Well, we come to the fourth and the final section, what I've called exhortations. Verses 32 to 37. And we've seen, in fact, that the whole chapter has this main purpose Verse 5, watch out. Verse 7, don't be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. And the closing section is full of this kind of exhortation from verses 32 onwards. Don't worry about dates and times. Don't develop an almanac theology. Don't be alarmed or frightened by the uncertainties of living in this fractured world. On the other hand, Don't relax either. Be on your guard. Watch. Just as the Jews couldn't believe that this massive temple would ever be destroyed, many of us have also become complacent. I think the reason why 9-11 was such a shocking event all around the world, but especially to us in the West, is that we thought we lived in a stable, predictable world. So Jesus says, have a different world view. Look at this world differently. Watch. Use the eye of faith to look at this world in the light 
of those eternal realities, God's ultimate purposes for us and for his world. We live in this broken age, but we are to look to an eternal God. We are to live with that end in view. Heaven and earth will pass away, verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away. That's the world we know. That's the world we live in, space and time. This is decaying. One day this will end, Jesus says. But my words will never pass away. See, his spoken word to us is enduring. It is reliable. It can be trusted. Jesus' words are communication from outside of time into our time-locked world. And that's why we need this perspective of eternity, why we must watch, look at the present reality in the light of God's ultimate purposes. Some of you remember an old book by Harry Blamires about the Christian mind, which he defined in this way. A prime mark of the Christian mind is that it cultivates the eternal perspective. It looks beyond this life to another one. It is supernaturally oriented and brings to bear upon earthly considerations the fact of heaven and the fact of hell. In other words, when Jesus says watch, he says, have the capacity to see things as they really are. Faith that makes a difference is faith that fixes his eyes on God's purposes, not on this immediate situation, on the ultimate, not on the short term. So our task is to live now faithfully, ready for that day when Jesus returns. And Jesus gives the little parable in verse 34, which makes exactly that point. A man who leaves his house, a master who leaves his servants in charge of the house. They don't know when he will return. If you look at verse 35, Jesus quotes, all four watches of the night. You just don't know when Jesus comes. He is going to come at any time. So don't fall asleep. Watch. Well, let me conclude. I wonder if you are living with the end in view. If you are, then you'll keep alert to false messiahs. You won't be alarmed by international turmoil or environmental catastrophe. You won't be surprised by persecution or the challenge of owning up to Jesus Christ. And you'll be committed to the cause of global mission to see that gospel advance. And as Jesus explains using this image of faithful servants in the house who get on with the job, we should live our lives ready for the return of the master. The way you carry out your responsibilities in your business life, the challenge of living according to God's kingdom in a secular world which runs by very different ethic from the Christian ethic, the way you handle difficult relationships, the way you serve as a carer or as a parent, the faithful way you do these menial tasks which seem to come your way. As Jesus says in verse 34, each with his assigned task, whatever it may be. Do all of that faithfully, he says, with a view to Christ's return, with a view to that day when this present world order will finally be wrapped up and we will know a new earth and a new heaven, the home of righteousness, as Peter calls it. The actress Helena Bonham Carter 
was interviewed quite recently about her life and work, and this is what she said. We're all going to die anyway, so what does it matter as long as you keep a sense of humor and have fun? And that's the philosophy of so many people, isn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we diet. But Jesus gives us a very different perspective. He says, live your life now responsibly, faithfully, wholeheartedly, in the expectation that one day the new will come. Christ will return. You are accountable to him. Well, we might face the dangers of persecution. We might face the dangers of false prophets or international turmoil. But there is certainly a danger we do face in the Western world. And it is boredom. And that's why this chapter is so important. Jesus is saying, guard against spiritual boredom, spiritual sleepiness. Keep awake to God's word, which will never end, to God's purposes, which will be fulfilled. Keep awake to the fact that Jesus will one day return. As Martin Luther put it, our final slide, work as though he will not be coming for a thousand years. Be ready as if he should come today. Let's pray together. Father, we know it's very easy to assign this subject of Jesus' return, the end of the world, as we know it's to the margins of our thinking and our planning. Sometimes the rather wacky things that are said about this put us off from truly understanding that these events, mysterious though they may be, will surely happen as Jesus has said. Your promises are sure. Your purposes are being worked out. And so we ask that we may have the eternal perspective, that we would look at our lives now in the light of the end. We pray that this will shape the decisions that we make. It will gird up our energies for more wholehearted commitment to Christian service. It will urge us to put some things right which should be put right. It will urge us to live wholeheartedly in the light of the fact that the Master will soon return to his house. And we pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in parts of the world who are suffering persecution, just as Jesus predicted, who are faithfully naming the name of Christ and suffering for it. We pray for your people and indeed all men and women who suffer the international conflicts and wars and rumors of wars, who suffer from earthquakes and natural disasters in this broken, fractured world. We pray that you will also give us a renewed urgency to proclaim the good news of the gospel, this saving promise of yours in Jesus Christ all around the world until that day when finally the end comes. Thank you for your mercy in waiting patiently for men and women to respond to you. Lord, in the light of that wonderful future, which fills us with hope and with joy, as your people will be gathered together, the chosen people, help us, Lord, to live our lives now wherever you place us, with whatever task you have given us, to do so wholeheartedly and for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.